Welcome to the IME Community Podcast, where self-love is your superpower to achieve your weight and life goals and make your mark in the world. Your host is Dr. Carla, activist MD. If you're a teen who's looking to revolutionize your health and can't wait to follow your dreams, welcome to the IME Community. Dr. Carla, welcome to the IME community YouTube video and podcast. I'm so excited because I have my amazingly brilliant friend and hunger activist, Alyn Sampson, who's the vice president of operations and impact at the Food Bank of Lincoln, who's going to be sharing all about her work and her journey. And she's just an incredible visionary and everyone in this community knows her and a lot of other communities. And so I thought sharing her work, especially with COVID and the pandemic and uh, all the needs that are out there and how the food bank of Lincoln and she and her position are addressing the needs and all the challenges, the successes. I mean, she's a really stay the course um, advocate uh, for, for the food bank, for the mission of the food bank, and a very innovative person and visionary around something that, um, if you know food bank language, is around shortening the lines. So really trying to get to the root cause of why people are struggling with food insecurity um, and hunger. And so I've known Alin for um, 10 years, probably I was on at least I was on the board of the Food Bank of Lincoln for uh, nine years, and I love serving. It's an incredible organization. If you are from another community listening, hopefully you are, then please reach out to your local food bank and uh, learn about how you can support. It's needed now uh, more than ever. So um, As uh, someone who was working in the community as a pediatrician and helping my patients who were struggling with hunger and the families with food insecurity. um, And also when I launched my nonprofit, Teach a Kid to Fish, that was really embedded in the community um, to work on childhood obesity prevention, Lynn and I and the staff at the food bank and the board, we worked really hard um, to, um, especially she was a really visionary founder around child hunger programs in this community and a program called Bridges Out of Poverty that we'll learn more about, but worked really hard to increase access to healthy foods. It's really a challenge um, and I think made a lot of headway in that area. So really proud of that. And so let me go ahead and introduce Alyn. So Lynn Sampson is the Vice President of Operations and Impact for the Food Bank of Lincoln. She's been working with the Food Bank since May of 2008. Alyn provides oversight to all operations 
and programming for the Food Bank of Lincoln. She's a certified trainer for the Bridges Out of Poverty, constructs and trains businesses, organizations, civic groups, and other nonprofit agencies on how to bring economic stability to the community and create a common language around poverty, which uh, I've been involved in watching Alin have the vision for Bridges Out of Poverty, and it's much more than doing the trainings. I mean, it's really bringing the whole vision to the community, and that is not an easy task. We talked about that last time on the podcast. This is the most challenging, the most difficult, the most impactful and rewarding work you're going to do is when you're at that kind of end user stage of working one-on-one -on -one with the community, and you see the need um, and it's, it's really tough, challenging, and rewarding. Alin is a 2006 graduate of Nebraska Wesleyan University with a degree in social work, sociology, anthropology, and received her master's degree in social work from the University of Nebraska, Omaha in 2015. And I read that and I was like, I can't believe it was that many years ago that you I know. finished your MSW. So cool. Oh my gosh. And um, I was thinking, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to launch this um, IME Community Solutions for Children's Health um, YouTube video and podcast series is because I feel like I, you know, I listen to Dr. Brene Brown, who's the most famous uh, social worker, <laughs> but yes. the PhD social worker, social work, but we have our own Dr. Brene Brown here. And I feel like in our community... Oh. <laughs> no, seriously, Lynn. I mean, I feel like, you know, I've listened to podcasts and I adore her. I love her. I listen, I learned so much from her mm. research. She's changing the world for the better. And at the same time, we have people, you know, like you who are literally at that level doing that work, who are experts in the community. And that's who we really need to hear from right now. Exactly like how you do it. How do you align with the vision? How do you stay the course? Um, so anyway, with that, that's a lot. I wanted to add one other thing too, is that I, uh, one of the reasons why I really wanted to be on the board of the Food Bank of Lincoln is because I grew up with food insecurity and hunger. And it's something that I never shared until I was on the board and they asked me to write an article why I support the food bank. And um, I started it with um, did you grow up hungry? I did. And you would look at me and not think that I was someone who struggled uh, with food insecurity or hunger. Um, but my sisters and I did. Our mom, uh, when our parents got divorced, our mom had severe depression. And so hunger was really a symptom. And, um, and it's really, really hard. It's traumatic and it's really painful. There's a reason it's called hunger pains. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you that nobody, even my closest friends know that we struggled with that. Um, and uh, so the mission is so important to me and there's a lot of shame around it. It's really tough, but uh, my message is you have no clue what people are experiencing. And, you know, I'm a face of hunger. And it, it plays into your life um, as an adult too, even though I'm someone with high resources now. So anyway, all of us who can support need to support these organizations in our community. It's super important. Okay, that's a lot. That um, is a lot, but I thank know. you. Yeah, so Alin, tell us about yourself and your work and also your kids and your oh family. Because your kids oh are my gosh. Flipping adorable. <laughs> they are something. Um, well, yeah, I appreciate all of the nice things you just said. Uh, I hope that I don't disappoint everybody and just be 
a dud for this entire thing. Um, but yes, I have been at the food bank um, since 2008. And I think when, uh, when I applied, I had no idea what the food bank was. I think that um, a lot of people still to this day do not understand food banks, how they work. Um, but I just saw the title, it was backpack coordinator at the time, and um, it had to do with feeding children. And so I thought, you know, that is something that I could do. Um, and I think for me from just early, early on, um, I have just had a strong interest in social justice issues uh, from very young, just wanting to help out, wanting to be a part of the community. Um, and I can just remember so many stories of my mom telling me of things that I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be the helper. I always wanted to go pick out stuff on the giving tree to buy kids stuff. Um, that was just something very early on that she recognized that, okay, she really wants to be the helper, be that person. And so um, I grew up thinking that I was going to be a teacher, that that was what I wanted to do. I loved teachers. Um, and in high school at Lincoln High, yay, go Lynx, um, mm -hmm. I had a teacher who completely changed my world, um, and it was a sociology class. And she really introduced um, these broader issues of systemic racism and social injustice and all of these concepts that I had no idea uh, about and all of these things that were happening to people, whether it was hunger, racial injustice, gender injustice. Um, and I knew, okay, I needed to be a part of that, what was going on. And, um, and so I just remember from that point on thinking, okay, well, I'm gonna teach people about this then. When I'm a teacher, I'm going to, that's what I'm going to teach. Uh, and I went to Nebraska Wesleyan thinking, okay, I'm going to be a teacher. And I very, in my freshman year, I kept writing about all of these injustice issues. And my advisor at the time said, you know, either become a writer or go talk to the social department. I really think that that would be a good fit for you. And I even thought at that time, social work was, you know, taking kids from their homes, being a part of that system. I had no idea the scope of what social work could do. And so I had a visit with um, a professor there and I knew that that's what I should do. Um, and so that's really how I landed in this work. After I graduated, I landed at a nonprofit and I knew instantly that that was the connection that, okay, nonprofits are able to do good work. I'm not meant for, for profit. I'm not meant to be pushed by deadlines and um, profit that I need to be pushed by just doing the good work. And so when I came to the food bank, uh, I immediately loved this work. And I think that this place has really allowed me to create those visions. And when we think about the broad aspect, I think that that's what's great about social workers is they come with such a broad educational background to say, you know, we're not just going to focus on this one thing that's happening how do we look at the systems as a whole? And I think that that was one strength that I was able to bring is just that different perspective of, but there's all of these other things that are at play and all of these other components that we can look at, not just putting food into mouths and then that's it. Um, and so that's really what drove me is uh, that to think about the possibilities of this work were really endless. And I think that I was very fortunate then 
to have a great boss who was also on board with that. Uh, and we were just such a great team for that to say like, what are our visions? Let's dream big and then let's make this happen and really created that space to allow that. Uh, and so that's really how I kind of evolved in this work. I so love shout this out to Scott Young, right? Shout out to the, Scott the Young, executive director. Who, yes, who yeah. was who's the greatest visionary? I mean, if and if anything, I always think like, what would Scott Young do? That's always my like, how can I be more <laughs> like Scott Young? Um, because he is just such a role model in that and a yes sayer of compassion. Yeah, and so I think compassionate. That's where, yes, and that's where I get so much of that from. Um, so this work is so important. I mean, I have my own family now. Um, I grew up in a single parent household and my mom was a hustler. I mean, she hustled hard to make sure she was very frugal. Uh, we made like our basement into an apartment that she rented out after my parents were divorced so that we could stay there. Um, she was a great budgeter, but she also had resources that set her up to do that kind of stuff. Um, and so we never experienced hunger. I would say we experienced very restrictive um, budgets. So mm -hmm. it was not a, we would go grocery shopping once a month because she got paid once a month and we would have to make that last. Um, we would take cold lunches every day. Um, and it, and I can remember, you know, as teenagers, it was very much we wanted these clothes, we wanted this. And my mom would say, here's what I'm willing to buy. If you want those, you have to pay for the other part of that. And so at 14, I thought, okay, I wanna be cool. I gotta go get a job if I want this stuff. Um, and so that's how we did it. And I really, she's such a role model to me of then having and recognizing the foundations that are built, uh, what that really means. And if you don't have that, it's not as easy as it's just that idea of like, well, work hard and you should be fine. Yeah. Um, there were so many things that my mom came from and that she had for generations that really set her up that when the divorce happened, she had all of these things that were in place and skills that not everybody has and not everybody grows up with it. So I recognized that really early on. Um, and then now I just see that so much when we look at people who are struggling and just their resource base. If you don't come from that, there's so many skills that people think are common sense that just are not, um, that you just assume everybody has, but it's just, that's not the case. So, um, you know, I feel very fortunate now. Uh, I have two kids, um, a 13 year old and a six year old, but there are definitely times when we go to bed and I think, you know, as my daughter has asked for the eighth time to have another snack, uh, I think that you have those moments of how fortunate. And I try to have those conversations, like there are kids who do not get this. And um, there are kids who don't get that opportunity or even go to bed without dinner and recognizing that privilege. Um, and there's definitely you know, been times I can remember for my son who would always complain about food. I mean, I would make him come to work or I would make him write reports about hunger and mm -hmm. so that he would recognize, you know, what's going on because it is something that if it doesn't touch you, it's hard to 
have meaning attached to that. So yeah, that's that is challenging. That's challenging as a parent, isn't it? I mean, it to is. see the need in the community and to grow up in a different way and your kids have a different level of resources. Yeah. I was thinking that when you were talking about the resource base, um, yeah. the, the things that your, that your mom was brought up with, you know, some people would say, oh, well, that's, you know, she had those privileges and maybe she would say, say that, you know, that those yep. just even like knowledge and skills and some yes. sort of support system is privileged now. But I was listening to a researcher who talks about resilience and people get resilience so wrong. And resilience is like a combination of internal and external resources. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have the external resources, yes. then I mean, you're not, you're not going to be able to have resilience. So when we say like, it just frustrates me so much when, um, like you were saying, is when people say, oh, kids are resilient. And mm-hmm. it's like, or something that you're either born with, like grit, or right. that you don't have. And that's, that's absolutely um, not true. So just really kind of trying to teach people about that um, anyway. And also there's some other cool stuff around self-determination theory. I don't know if you, you probably yeah. know way more about that and self-actualization theory. And there's some stuff coming out in coaching um, around that versus like Maslow's hierarchy that um, it seems like, and I, I saw this a lot in my work and in practice is like with Maslow's it's, um, you know, it's helpful to know the need, but it's oftentimes it's like, oh, well, they're, it's kind of like, it's, they're stuck in it. Like, yeah, it's their fate. It's their fate. Yeah. So do you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, I can. And I think that's something we see with the bridges out of poverty work and even the getting ahead work. These are classes that we specifically work with individuals who come from poverty. And it is this idea of um, destination or fate that I've just been given this and this is my fate. This is what it is. Um, And how do you then um, one acknowledge, okay, this is what we have been given, but then how do you build self-determination. And um, that is one skill that when this curriculum was created and graduates of this program, you know, there were individuals who built this curriculum for getting ahead of here's what it takes to get out of poverty. And one of the resources that was added probably eight years ago was this idea of um, self-determination and motivation that you really do need that in order to make changes or to learn new things. Um, And that was something that that group identified that hadn't been identified in years past to say, okay, we really, you have to visualize it. You have to see it. Um, And that's one thing that we do in our getting ahead class is one, let's just take a moment to take a look at what your life is like right now. So whether they draw pictures, they write words, it really for them puts it in a concrete way to say, here's what it's like. So again, that kind of fate, like, well, here's what my life is like, but then a safe space and time to say, well, what would it look like in the future? What is that? What do you want it to look like? What would success look like for you? Or what would stability mean for you? Because it means something different for every person, that it's not just about, let me throw $5,000 at you and you should be fine. Um, And so I think that that's such a great piece of our classes. Um, Stability means so much for 
for everyone and putting that on paper, whether they're writing it or drawing a picture uh, reminds them then, okay, I, what do I need to do to get there? How do I make that a reality? How do I, if that is what I want, what do I need to do? And sticking with that. So it's not like we make the picture and then it goes away. It's then for the next 11 weeks, okay, how do we work towards that? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you make that come true? How do you really say, no, this is what it is going to look like for me and I'm determined to get there? That's like your massive action goal. It's like to believe, mm -hmm. The yes. art of like believing on purpose is like yes. talk. Like to evoke like positive emotion activation is going to yeah. be motivating. It's not the like negative emotion activation yeah. that we get when we just tell people what to do. And a big part of Bridges Out of Poverty is really getting the whole business community, the funders, everyone around uh, a more of an understanding of yes. the needs. And then oftentimes people who have say that the reason that people do not have is because they don't have that grit or there's you know they're not motivated or right. you know there's something individually wrong but it's not true it's just like like you're doing with bridges out of poverty is working yeah. individually with them to support them to believe that it's possible yes i think that's such a huge piece and giving them a safe space to digest all of this information and really um look at the truths that they've had for generations that, you know, this is the way kind of how, you know, I would say middle-class judges others that like, well, this is what I know to be true. This is how I've operated. So everybody should operate this way. Mm -hmm. And I think with bridges, it's really asking that question and looking at it from both sides to say, okay, this may be what you know, but how do you put that aside and be open to other ways of doing it? And we're asking both sides to do that. And I think that's really the connecting piece is um, there is no right way or correct way to build stability or what that means. And so this getting ahead class really offers folks, you know, we know that this has been the case for generations, but how do you start building different skills or resources that you didn't even know about? Um, and the same for middle class that, you know, there may be other ways to do this, but this isn't the only way to be thinking about something because that's what's worked for you. Um, and I always try to say, you know, in Bridges that when I talk to businesses or um, agencies about how do you adjust the ways that you're doing things, because that's just how you've always done them. Um, and I never want people to think that we're lowering any expectation for someone who comes from that poverty environment, I think for us, it's, you know, how do you create an, an additional pathway for people? How do you create another way to get to that same expectation? So like for businesses or jobs, you know, I'm not asking you to lower the expectation. I'm just asking you to create another way to get there. That makes sense to those who come from that environment because they have different motivations. It's not the same motivation or reason as middle class because the environments are so different so it's really just recognizing and kind of calling your own self out to think well why do I have these thoughts why do I even have that knee-jerk reaction when I look at somebody and I say don't they know better uh and I bias <laughs> yes the trainer once told me you know it's not that people know better it's that they know different so even just adjusting and changing the way that we even think about that um, is such a key thing. 
And um, I think we take for granted the skills and resources that um, you identify as middle class or wealth. Um, you just take for granted things that you do every day that were really taught to you by just existing in that environment. So no one told you, um, this is something you should know. This is how you operate. You just grow up learning those things. Um, and I think a great example is things like future orientation. It's such a skill that people don't understand that we assume everybody's thinking about their future. But if I grow up in poverty, um, everything is happening that's in a crisis. So everything's happening now. And I'm trying to decide right now how to survive. So this idea of future just doesn't really grow for me in that environment. So it's just that idea of being able to take in information in my brain, being able to see how a decision plays out for me. So if I decide this, then this will happen. If I decide this, then this will happen. Um, and being able to see that. If you do not grow up with that happening for you, that you don't have that skill. And so when people ask like, well, why didn't you think ahead about this? Didn't you think about that? No, because we take for granted that everybody, not everybody has that future orientation. Um, and so just something as when you think about that skill, and I have a, um, a friend who has struggled with that of just being able to take in information and see, okay, how does this play out for me? If I decide to do this, then what happens? Or if I decide to do this, then what happens? And that's such a, a small thing that people don't realize. Um, how do you start implementing that? And sometimes you have to really visualize that for somebody. And there's a great trainer who used like rocks as a physical to say, okay, lay this rock down for that choice. So if you make that choice, then what happens? Lay that rock out. Um, and just being able to learn that to say, okay, now I kind of have that skill. And so when we think about success or, you know, I've had so many funders say, so are people out of poverty yet? Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's not as simple as that. And it's hard to quantify, no, but somebody now knows how to take in information and see how it plays out for them. And they've for generations not been able to do that. Uh, you know, That's how do you huge. quantify that? Yeah, mm -hmm. that they don't understand that that is an actual skill that we are utilizing many of us every day. You know, there are so many times throughout the day that I'm making those decisions like, okay, well, if I decide this, you know, then what will happen? Um, but if I'm living in a crisis, I don't teach that to my children or my children then aren't teaching that to their children because we're constantly in this crisis mode. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think things like that, I, that's the visionary piece of, okay, now I've added one more skill to the next generation. And then hopefully that generation now has that one and maybe we can build on another one. And now the next generation has two more skills that three generations ago didn't have. And that's really how you start changing generational poverty that it's not this overnight after 12 weeks, yeah. you know, I have it solved and done. That's the long work, which, you know, I know, you know, very well. And it's hard to explain to funders to say like, this is a long game. Mm -hmm. This is a long game. This is years and years and years of this work in hopes that you could start building different skills um, that people just didn't know about. Yeah. So, so what, tell me a little bit more about like the data around bridges, because how many people have you served and 
Um, yeah. So Bridges works with how many people are in a group that you run through a 12 week training? Yes. The class that we do, it can be as small as four or as big as 10. 10 is really our max um, that we like to do because it's such an intimate and emotional process. Um, and so this class meets every week for two and a half hours. Um, we typically do a meal. If it's an evening class, we provide childcare. Um, so it's really this safe time for, for individuals to really do some assessing of what my life is like right now, what are the resources that I need. Um, and I think the biggest change that we've seen, we have the last time that we looked, um, it was an 89% graduation rate, wow. um, which is really huge when you think about 12 weeks. And I think that's a myth. Um, when we think about people who are in poverty, that they're unreliable uh, and that they are not committed, that um, that's a really big deal for us because they continue to come week after week. And I think it's just our approach and how welcoming and safe this space is and the importance of relationships. That once people build a strong, positive relationship, um, that's when the reliability really shows itself. And I think that a lot of times employers miss that piece or agencies miss that piece that we're so worried about the goals or getting the stuff done or checking off the list that we forget this piece about how do we build relationships and how do I make sure that you know that I think that you matter um, and that I want to be here with you to do this work. Um, and I think we oftentimes skip over that piece because we don't understand how important that is uh, for folks. A lot of times that's the motivation is relationships. So I think that contributes to our um, attendance and graduation rate. Um, the biggest thing that we see for our, um, the data that we do is just their increase in knowledge of um, areas as far as how poverty exists. Why does it exist? That it's, oh, it's not just me that's the sole contributor to this, that they become more aware of this, of all of these systems that are in place that contribute to poverty. Um, Another thing is time management. We've seen an increase in people's ability to understand that and to manage their time. Um, and goal setting is huge. That's more um, of a qualitative piece is just, we ask them what their goals are in the beginning and then we ask them at the very end and it becomes so much more specific at the end of the class. You know, at the beginning, it's very general, like, oh, I wanna, become more financially stable or, oh, I want to have a better life for my family. And then at the end, they are very much like these smart objectives, like by this time, I'm going to do this so that by this time this happens. And um, again, it's hard to even, that's a success for us just to understand how specific it is um, that they get that, that, okay, you know, we do a lot of short-term things. We do some long-term goals. Uh, but just understanding it becomes so much more specific. So it could be, I'm going to call SCC by March 30th to enroll in my first class, or um, I understand that I need to make $14 an hour instead of the $12 an hour. So my goal is to find this job by this time. Um, and so there's just those kinds of increases that we see um, that it's hard to say, does that get them out of poverty? 
But again, it's that skill of like, how do we increase those skills that they le- that they didn't know about? And it's such a safe place to do that. So no one feels stupid, no one feels judged. Um, and we really, our goal is to get them back out in the community to be, to really feel like they are a piece of this. Um, they provide great feedback as far as uh, what's happening within our agency network. So, you know, they know exactly what's going on and how we can improve. And I think what I've learned is throughout this process that these are some of the best problem solvers that we have, that we don't utilize them enough to Mm -hmm. solve problems because they're solving them every day. Um, But we just don't hone in on that skill enough that this is an actual skill to problem solve, to be able to get through the day. So now how can I apply that to other things? Mm -hmm. And um, I think we underestimate them a whole lot. And um, I always say, you know, we could have had this thing solved years ago if we just would have invited people who are experiencing it to the policymaking table, really make the changes because they know, they know what it takes. They are indeed the experts in poverty. But I, I totally agree with that. I think that's so powerful. And Jesse was talking a little bit about that too. Like, how do we, you know, when you're a visionary in the community and you're do, the one who's creating these programs and doing this work and showing up. And like you said, I love that. It's like, I, you matter and I want to be here with you. And that's the true, that's the true crux of it is like, that's what drives us to do this work is like, we want yes. to be there. That's, yep. that's why I created IME community is because it got me out of all the crap systems I was uh-huh. in who were trying to just use me for marketing and right. have a title. And it's like, no, I want to be with the end yeah. user, the people. And it's so true that like successful entrepreneurs, anybody who's successful loves the problem, not their solution. Um, yeah. And so they, people who are struggling are, I agree, they're the best problem solvers because they're focused on the problem. They're not just sitting around thinking yes. of these solutions, like what, um, you know, the privileged maybe funders are, or yes. <laughs> it's, frustrating. it's so frustrating. Um, but I think, you know, part of the getting ahead, our classes and what we try to empower folks is is to really feel confident that they can be a part of that process that you know there are systems made to make you feel like you don't belong and that this isn't meant for you um but making sure that they know no this actually is and we can be at the table and we're going to help you get to the table and be prepared um and so that you feel like you belong there and that you are prepared so you know what kind of language they're going to use you know how they're going to address folks you know um what's going to be talked about so that you feel prepared. Uh, and we had a getting ahead grad, but that was really important to her is to be involved, more involved in the political process and how to do that. And so that was one of her takeaways is, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be a part of this and I am going to be at the table because I do actually know things. Um, and it's empowering her to find her own voice to say, yes, I don't need to advocate for you. You are, you have all of the skills and you can do that. Or um, for us, it was inviting a graduate to our board to say, um, you know, this is really important. And I think that that's, and being there um, through it, that we know that it's um, going to be inconsistent, that maybe there are weeks that, or months that 
she's going to be able to make it and months that she cannot because of life. But that's just what's going to happen. But do we value when she is there for her contributions? Absolutely. And I think that was even an adjusting for some people, um, you know, to feel comfortable with that and to be okay with being flexible. And again, some of those rules. So like, well, our bylaws say this, um, you have to miss, you can't miss so many, but you know, who cares? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> same time, we are creating programs. Um, and it's important for us to make sure that we have that perspective and that we are doing things with people and not for them. I think that was something that Scott mm -hmm. and I are both really big on is that, um, do we have the right people at the table? Should we even be making these decisions? And, um, you know, it's definitely a work in progress. I think we're continuing to improve on that, but, you know, our vision, I think, is how do we do the work with people and not for them? How do that's, we change that? That's so cool, Lynn. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about um, the food bank and how food banks work and uh, how many meals you're serving. And yes. You serve 16 counties, right? We do. We serve 16 counties in Southeast Nebraska. And um, food banks, there's about 200 food banks across the country. Um, and our, we're kind of like the hunter and gatherers of food. So our job is really to seek out and to gather product and then to distribute that out to the community through our own networks. So through an agency network, through mobile pantries, through child hunger programs, um, you know, we are essentially a mini distributor of food. So um, we call our warehouse a distribution center. We are not here to warehouse it. Uh, we are here to distribute that out. And um, we distribute um, between nine and 10 million meals each year. Um, obviously, that has changed a little bit. It fluctuates, I would say, in anywhere between eight and 11 mm -hmm. um, based on what's going on. But we're getting food. You know, we're part of the Feeding America network. Um, and Feeding America is really like the nation's food banks. They're kind of the hub of all of this action, pulling in large manufacturers and large retailers um, to work with food banks at a local level. So, um, you know, one of their strengths is having that ability to, for instance, there's a national partnership with Trader Joe's. So they're setting that up. So then Trader Joe's knows, okay, there's a local food bank. I need to give to that local food bank um, or other places like Aldi or Sam's Club or some of those larger retailers. There are national partnerships that happen. Um, and that's a great connection for us, or they're talking to large funders. So then that money can trickle down to food banks. They're talking to different um, growers and producers. So, you know, that we're getting produce from those connections. So mm -hmm. our job really is to get all of that food to here at the food bank. And then we distribute it out by the truckloads, whether it's we're delivering to Fairbury, Nebraska to an agency so that they can distribute food or we're delivering it to a mobile pantry. Um, that's our main way to get to get food out uh, right now. And then we just have a variety of other programs like our backpack program that sends food filled backpacks home to kiddos on Friday afternoons. We do kind of a mini mobile pantry in other schools where kids can come down in a cafeteria, select food of their choice, 
take it home to their families. Um, and that's instead of the backpack program. That's instead there. of so yep, how many the schools are doing the the markets? Oh my gosh, um, that's a good question. Maybe fifteen. Oh wow. Okay. That. There's quite a few uh, that are now operating that. Um, they serve larger quantities. For us, it was about efficiency and trying to be able to feed more students um, for the same amount of money or less money for us. Um, and that was our way to try to alleviate the waiting list for the backpack program. Uh, I think the most painful memories that I have is when I first started here and the backpack program was really kicking off and just the heartbreaking of um, on Friday afternoons, helping distribute backpacks and then just a line of children waiting to see if somebody didn't show up for their backpack so that they could take it home um, because they would do that. You know, if students were missing, then it would go to the next student who was waiting and just the awfulness of that entire process of hopeful kids on Fridays hoping that their classmate wasn't there so that they could take that backpack home. So and for then people who, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. for people who don't know about a backpack program and maybe they don't have it in their community, I know a lot of communities do have yes. it. Can you tell us a little bit more about like what it actually means they get a backpack yes. of food? They do get a, yep, a backpack of shelf-stable food on Fridays um, during the school year. And the school selects these families um, and they get it for that school year unless they opt out. So every Friday they come down and pick up a backpack uh, to take home for the weekend. And um, the last I knew, I think over a hundred food banks were doing a backpack program, but the goal was really to try to alleviate that weekend hunger because uh, the reality is schools offer so much consistency and so much um, protection and safety. And so kids were eating breakfast and lunch at school. And then on the weekends, it's just hit or miss. So that is a time of high food insecurity. And um, Monday, Monday's teachers and staff were just hearing horrific stories of, you know, kids eating crackers or um, just coming to school on Monday, not really having eaten a whole lot. And so that's really how this program developed. Um, and I think even for Lincoln, which you wouldn't think that it is a high poverty, um, you know, we have almost 50% of our students on free or reduced lunch. And so there are just some families that are really struggling and there's never, for us, there was never enough backpacks. And um, so then it was kids just would be waiting and everybody would pick up their backpack or maybe there'd be a couple left. And then who gets those, you know, how do you decide who gets to share um, that backpack and that was always awful um, but one thing that I've learned is how compassionate and caring kids really are and I think that's something that we underestimate is or have this myth that kids are ungrateful and that they are just learning to accept um, free stuff and um, become freeloaders and there was an afternoon that you know there wasn't this a kid didn't know how it worked. He just said like, oh, his friend was hungry, go to the office and go get a backpack. And um, because he thought that's just what you did and how you got one. And so the kid went to the office and they said, you know, oh, we're full, I'll put you on the list. And um, this little boy was so sad because he thought he could just get a backpack for his family. So he came back and told his friend and um, was super upset that he couldn't get one. And so his friend 
opened his backpack up um, and there were some Pop-Tarts in there. And so he was like, here, you take the Pop-Tarts home. I'll just tell my mom that we didn't get them this weekend. Aww. And to be in elementary school, you know, and I think my kids who sometimes lacks compassion, uh, the ability to recognize that. And I think, you know, as you, you never forget what hunger feels like and to offer that to say, I know what that's like. And so I'm going to share the little bit that I have so that you at least have something. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, kids are some, we can learn so much. And I wish that we listened to kids more um, and learned from them just about that compassion and that care uh, that we are definitely not seeing ungratefulness or um, people taking advantage of us. Uh, but that I think right there, you know, kids recognize that and they understand um, what that means and um, really care for each other. And I think that that's, I've seen that in elementary school all the way to high school. Um, And at Lincoln High, we saw that where there's been times that it's been so busy when we first started that, that we would sometimes run out and um, we just wouldn't plan for enough. And a student came through and skipped a couple items. There was some produce and we asked him, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, you can have some of this. And he said, no, I just, I see the line out there. And there are some kids that I know that are struggling more than I am. So I'm going to skip those so that they can at least get some of that. Wow. And, you know, that's a high schooler. And I, yeah, I just, I think we have this vision or this idea of, you know, snotty kids or, um, and it's just not that, that I think that um, there's a lot of care and just empathy and this understanding, like we are all in this together, that, you know, we, we get what this life is about and um, how can we build our own community together and support each other. And I think that that really has shown me a lot about what community means and um, how we are truly in this together and has changed my mind about just even youth in general. You know, I think I was apprehensive about high school markets and how that would look. And um, I've just seen some of the most respectful and grateful kids that have come through and um, some of these lines. And that really, you know, is what, why I still do this and what really the work is about. Yeah, so. so much more than, than I mean, the getting the food in the hands mm-hmm. kids and families and community is so important, but it's about building and creating that supportive community and network so that they know that they have yes. a place where it's like, you matter, we're here, yeah. they're not alone, they believe yep. they can have, they deserve to have their needs met. I mean, it's it's such powerful work. Okay. I know it's a funny story of when you first started and you and Scott went to, um, Scott Young, who we talked about earlier was a former executive director. Um, and also shout out to Michaela Kumpke, who's the executive director of the, um, uh, food bank of Lincoln and their capital Capital campaign and building the building is awesome. I'm so excited. Um, But anyway, um, I remember Scott telling me a funny story about like when you started and you both went to, I don't know if it was Clinton Elementary or where it was. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And you really were like, you're just a diehard (laughs) 
visionary, like action taker, like, when do you know, Alin? Like, I know, I know how it is. Like, it's like, this is going to happen. Yeah. Like you just know in your heart and every part of you, like, I'm going to make this happen. Like there is yeah. just no, I don't, I'm going to be fearless. And you don't even have those conversations in your head. Right. It's just like, no. this is going to be yeah. done. This is going to be nice and done. <laughs> that's what Scott and I, I mean, we just have so many funny stories. Um, but yes, that was when we were first growing our programs and thinking, okay, here's the amount of funding that we have. Here's, here's what we could do. And so we had just so many requests from schools that started pouring in like, oh, we need this program. We need this program. And so we were trying to create like a tiered system of, okay, here's who we would go after first. Then we could go to these schools. And so he's like, okay, we're going to go to this school. Um, I think it was color middle school. And they were like right on the cusp of like, okay, we still have some other schools that maybe should be a priority. So let's go in. Let's just listen. Let's just they listen. They had a higher percentage of free and reduced lunch. Yes, center. a free and reduced yeah. lunch. Okay. And so that's what we were trying to gauge and say, okay, we'll put you on our list. Essentially, we were creating our own waiting list. And so we said, okay, we're just going to go in and listen. Let's just listen to what they say. Um, and of course, you know, the stories started coming out about students who were hungry, staff who were buying snacks. And, um, and I just was said, okay, we're going to make this happen. We are going to start this program. And he, we got in the truck and he just said like, okay, so we're making that happen. I said, yep, we're going to figure this out. We are going to make sure that the school has, and that was, became the joke because it was school after school after school, uh, telling these heartbreaking stories and staff trying to figure it out while they're teaching. And I think that's really what got to me. So it was like, every school is like, yep, okay, we'll make this happen. And I just remember after a couple months, it was, I mean, we grew from like 800 students to 1500 in a matter of a couple of months, because we just, I couldn't say no. And that I think is um, the piece that, you know, luckily Scott trusted that we could figure that out or um, because you just can't say no when, staff are telling stories about hungry students and you know but I think what got me is um that staff were trying to figure this out on their own and buying things and trying to figure out basic needs before they could even teach so it was if somebody's coming in hungry well we know nothing's going to get done until that student has food so now it's now I'm going to spend time figuring out how to get you food before I can start teaching math or before we can start doing this, because I know that nothing is going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, that was, okay, what is our role in this? And how do we, again, be that community piece of let's figure this out to alleviate some of the pressure from the schools having to um, problem solve that basic need. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we had a lot of those moments where he would, we would get back in the car and he would just say, well, we're doing that school, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we yep. are. <laughs> that's yep. happening. That yeah, is that's happening. Awesome. That's all, that's all vision and like compassion too. And yeah. shout out to all the teachers and school nurses and administrators who are always there for the, I mean, they don't get enough credit and obviously during COVID it's been even more challenging for them. So they really don't their students and I know even with food, I mean, yeah. so, okay. So tell me, um, uh, tell the audience, um, how, how can you fund it? I mean, I know how this backpack 
program yeah. and then you have to have when you're in a nonprofit or any agency mm -hmm. you have to have a diversity of funding and the food bank of lincoln has an incredible development director um yeah. john mabry um who's amazing but he, was, he wasn't there at the time um no. so how did the community come around and support the launch of the backpack program and expansion of it yeah, I think, um, you know, we are very unique. Uh, of course, we do have one of the best development directors out there. Um, but when we didn't have John Mabry, uh, we were really hustling to get funds in. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we're really unique. Our school district here in Lincoln, it's one school district, uh, one main school district. And um, this school district from day one has been a yes sayer for anything that we've wanted to do. And I think that that has been a plus that a backpack programs across the country um, don't have that partnership um, okay. or as positive as a partnership where there's not a lot of hoops to jump through. And, um, and so that was really the key for us is we wanna make this work, here's let's pilot it. And then when it did work, um, it slowly started growing and people started hearing about it. And then it was, well, now how do we fund this? And so it came at a perfect time for us because um, the school district as a whole was, they were doing an annual giving campaign um, and a walk-a-thon essentially. Mm -hmm. So that time they had been doing it for five years for an organization, a charitable organization. And they were right at that time thinking, is it time to move on? Should we do something else? And that was when the backpack program was really starting to kick off. And so they decided, let's do it for the backpack program. Let's really make this happen. Um, and so the entire district does this fundraiser and then they show up um, and walk and celebrate the funds that were raised. Um, and I think they had been raising like $50,000 for this organization prior. Um, and that very first walk, it was like a hundred and some thousand dollars that they had raised. Um, and so I think at that moment, we knew um, what that meant for us, that, okay, people are on board, they want to, to help end hunger, um, and more importantly, the entire school district is on board. Mm -hmm. um, and so at that time, we had a part-time coordinator, and I think for Scott and that part-time coordinator, uh, they knew, okay, this is growing, and it's going to become bigger and we need somebody full-time to do this kind of work. Um, and so that's how I came on board. And I think then year after year, it just kept growing that walk and those funds, more people started hearing about it. So individual people would be donating separately from that walk throughout the year. Funders started getting on board. I think, um, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, it's so easy to give to child hunger. Uh, when you think about a kid hungry, um, it's very easy to reach into your wallet and give money for that. Um, it's a lot harder to feed that mom who is experiencing that hunger. It's a lot harder for people to reach in their wallets and give to the hungry mom or the dad or the veteran or um, someone struggling with addiction and experiencing hunger. It's harder for that. Uh, but what we decided very early on, too, with our backpack program is, again, that kind of holistic approach of um, traditionally the backpack program was just for that student. And so they would only do individual items like the individual cups of fruit or raviolis or cereal bowls. Um, and we decided very early on um, 
that we needed to feed that whole family, that we would never want to put someone in a situation where they were only taking food home for themselves and then not anyone else. Um, and so our stance was, is it, does it make it a little heavier? Yes. Um, but we want to make sure that there's something to carry at home. Yeah. We want to make sure that there is something for everyone. Um, and that we don't want to put the kid in that situation, but that, you know, comes with its own ethical issues too, that we also had to work through of like, is it the kid's responsibility to feed their entire family? And, um, you know, so we have wrestled with all of that and, um, talk to schools and families to say, would you prefer the individual, you know, is this too much? Um, and the feedback that we've received throughout the years is to not change it and that they will make it work to get that home um, because their families do need it. So wow. that is, yeah, so how powerful. it's powerful. It's yeah. amazing. So you had a partnership with the school, but you had a champion, right? Did you work with Dr. Marilyn Moore? Who's yes, Dr. Marilyn Moore was a huge yes sayer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and huge supporter in everything that we did. And I feel like that just trickled down to all of the schools to say like, no, we are doing this. And um, when Dr. Joel came on board, he completely believed in it. And um, again, just continued on that culture of we're going to say yes Mm -hmm. to the food bank. And um, I know that not every food bank has that kind of partnership and so Scott and I have always talked about now Michaela you know that we never take that for granted because it could turn you know we don't know what's going to happen now with Dr. Joel retiring that you hope that the next superintendent is just as supportive um, because we have been very lucky that they've always said yes and I think COVID um, strengthened our partnership that they said yes to anything that we wanted to do um, they volunteered at our at our mobile drive-throughs when we were located at schools. Um, they really wanted to make sure that we had access to their families, especially when the school shut down. Um, and they were willing to do whatever whatever it took. And I think that that really was real powerful for us that they were on board and they would do those calls home um, early on and say, here's where the food bank will be. And they would do that every single week to say, here's where the food bank's going to be this week, or they would post it. Um, and then in the winter, they let us put up some tents at a couple of their school locations uh, so that we could continue feeding there. I mean, they have just been amazing partners and um, huge advocates. I, you know, they, at Bryan Community School, we have a standalone pantry there. We were at a middle school and a portable. And when they needed that, they said, we're going to build you shelves in a school so that you can have um, a pantry there. And I just, you know, it was no cost to us. That was something that they funded and built. And I just, you know, those are things that are very, we're very fortunate. They get it and they, um, you know, want to make sure that their families have access to food. So it's incredible. So what do you think is a key? I mean, you're aligning with the vision, right? The school district, you had a high level champion. Yes, we did. Um, And um, you had a lot of things that you, you did. It sounds like correctly that probably contributed to the success and sustainability. I think you, you all framed it up 
well, initially it was backpack, but then really worked around child hunger programs. Yes. There were so many shared stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's just so powerful. You yeah. had a, such a defined need. So those stories were powerful too. You piloted it. Also, the other thing that's really powerful is that there were a lot of volunteer opportunities. So the whole yes. community could really connect and see the yes. really see the the fruit of the labor of like I'm packing yep. the backpack and then we're distributing them and you're putting actually putting it into the hands of the child, which is really yes. powerful. It is. And I think that's contributed to our um, sustainability of this program is when people can be a part of it and feel it and see it. um, I think that that's been a huge piece that we've been able to offer. And again, the schools who said yes to say, yeah, bring in volunteers. They can. So I think that that's been huge is that we continue to offer that to say, if you want to see it, you know, we want you to be involved in it. And I, and I think that that's, and I think it's important for, again, like the youth to see that, no, we're behind you. We're here. Mm-hmm. Um, not in a way that's showy off of volunteers to, you know, oh, you want to hand out to these underprivileged, um, that no, we want to do this with people. Again, it's that idea that uh, I just want kids to see that the community is behind them and that we're here and we're showing up and we want you to do well, and we don't expect anything in return as far as, um, you know, like the gratitude or having this high emotional, like, oh my gosh, thank you so much that, um, you know, that's, yeah, we don't want that. I think it's more of just, we want you to know that we're going to keep showing up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's I important. And you I hope matter, that we remember gonna- that. Yeah. We're going to keep showing up for you. It's awesome. Yeah. So um, you referred to this a bit, but tell us how COVID has affect the, affected the food bank. I mean, come on. And I know it's been so. My gosh. Cool. It's <laughs> completely changed um, how we operate. And I, it's kind of put, as we talked about, you know, we are traditionally the, the distributors and we're trying to get food to agencies and partners. And then during COVID, we became the feeders that it kind of stopped where um, as agencies started shutting down, um, volunteers. an example, like Center for People in Need is an agency, which is another local nonprofit that has a mission to address poverty in the community. So the food bank takes food um, and then that's, they distribute the food. Yep. But during COVID, you all... During COVID, um, you know, the center and the food bank were huge feeders in the community. The center went to distributing food every single day. And so did we. Um, They took everything back to their building and were distributing out of their own building. Um, And then we just decided to, um, that was our focus, that we stopped doing everything else as far as our child hunger programs. Um, we shut down to the majority of agencies who uh, we were distributing food through. We stopped doing pickups at our local stores that we were just focused on feeding. So we were out every single day, multiple times a day, um, all across our 16 counties doing these drive-through mobile distribution. So we were taking truckloads, people could drive through, we were just putting them in, our, in their trunks. Um, and it was a Monday through Saturday operation. Um, And we had split into two teams at that time. Um, We had a green team and an orange team, and we split 
our staff up. We had a permanent work from home team and then these two teams um, that operated every other week. So that way, if a team was exposed, uh, we had another team that never had access to them. So okay. we could keep operating. So it took um, months before we even had to deploy that. I think, you know, we split up in March and it wasn't until November that one team did um, get COVID. And so we then had the other team operate for, um, it ended up being about three weeks um, solely um, until that team was fully good. Uh, but that's why we did it so that we didn't have to stop anything. Wow. And um, it was extremely busy. Um, I think when COVID started, I mean, everybody thought like, we're going to do this for a few months and then we'll get back together. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a full year of doing that. And um, I think a lot of our administrative, um, the administrative staff continued to do their work from home. Some of the program staff became operation staff. So that was really my first of just diving in and becoming part of the operations team and learning you know, how to use an electric jack, learning how to build pallets, learning how to um, take orders out of our system. I mean, it was such a learning curve for me uh, personally and also physically um, just being shoved into that. But it was one of the best experiences at the food bank. Again, because I was able to do everything alongside of the staff. And I think that's so important to me even today. I think that's the hardest adjustment that this has been is stepping away from that, yeah. um, doing that work with that group every day um, because I just have such a strong feeling of I never want anybody to think that I am too good for that work or that I'm asking you to do anything that I wouldn't do. And I think that that's, um, if that's, what became so important during COVID is that we were truly all in this together mm -hmm. and um, we were there, you know, every day doing that work. And so we hustled hard. Um, that was when we had great resources from the government. The government stepped in and was giving us tons of product. Um, we received lots of CARES dollars and able to purchase funds. So we were handing out some of the best foods that we've ever handed out in the history of the food bank. So it was tons of fresh produce, um, dairy products, meat products. Um, and then we had a, lots of shelf stable product as well. So that was a very fortunate experience that, and we hired a couple staff during COVID. So coming down from that, you know, they've never seen anything different. And now things have changed as far as our food resources. And so it's been kind of a shock to them to say like, well, actually this is how it was before COVID. Um, yeah. Now like this is actually normal, um, but it was a crazy time. You know, we've distributed more food than we ever have before. I think our staff grew closer um, than ever before. And I think it was a great eye-opener for me about the work that our, our drivers and our distribution staff do. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, you know, it was so hard, mm -hmm. but um, because I think it's, there was at the beginning of COVID, there were so many people panicking as far as in the community, people that we were serving and people who were scared and just didn't know what was going to happen. And so one of our very first distributions out in a rural area um, our staff just came back really shooken up. 
I mean, they were, um, because they ran out. And so, but people in the lines were so anxious and um, emotional and afraid because of course we wouldn't be back for another month. So our staff just started taking like one item out of the food bags just to give to people. Um, and it was so emotional for them. Um, they came back just, you know, emotionally wrecked. Yeah. yeah, because they just thought like, what is about to happen? You know, like they have never seen people so scared. Um, and I think at that moment we knew that um, this was going to be big and that we had to figure this out and make sure that we were feeding as many people as we could and showing up as many places. So we started mapping out places that we had never gone before and just started making calls to say like, we're gonna show up at this spot, is this okay? Um, and that's really how we did COVID. Wow. Um, I remember it's still that. happening. But. Yeah, it is. And so I remember like, since I live close to Leffler Middle School, it's like, Oh my gosh, the that line one. of cars. It, I was just going for a walk, like I usually do. And I was like, yeah. oh my gosh. And then I saw the food bank of Lincoln truck. It was like, oh my gosh. I mean, all these families yeah. who, who had never needed yes. food uh, before. Yep. They had never faced it. But I mean, they were just really challenged. They were. And I. it was such a hard time. Um, that one was very outline that was very stressful um but yeah so many I mean it was like the schools were shut down which is such a huge primary feeder for so many families that it was yeah we had seen people that we have never seen um before and honestly didn't even know what to do or they were so embarrassed to come or they felt like they had to justify and tell us what happened and you know we are just a no questions asked we don't care um what brought you here we're just here to give you food and so that I think was a challenging to be on the other side to now um you know, there definitely were people who have donated to the food bank who are now in line um, because things just shut down. And um, it was it was a very memorable time. Um, and we're still in it, you know, that we are still experiencing it. And um, I'd mentioned earlier, you know, our numbers are starting to go up again. And um, we're wondering what is going on about you know, with that, that we're seeing an increase. Um, I think that for so many that we always know those who are um, in poverty or in the lower middle class, once something like this happens, they're always the last to recover. That it's easy for us to think like, oh, things are getting better because the stock market's back up or, um, oh, this millionaire is back to making $5 million a year or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the person Elon Musk pulled off from a yeah. Tesla, you know, <laughs> right? He's shipping more people to space, so everything must be fine. <laughs> yeah, and it's not. You know, there were people who had to make job changes, um, and who are still struggling to dig out of that mess that happened, or um, who lost jobs, and so obviously they didn't get kicked out or evicted. Um, but, you know, all of that has to be paid back at some point. So, you know, people who couldn't afford their mortgage um, for a time, all of those things are coming up that, okay, that has to be paid. And so people are still behind. They're still 
behind financially, um, even though they have jobs that it just does, doesn't magically dig them out of a year of um, building up debt and um, all of that. So I think we forget that, that just because it seems like it's getting better, um, there's still families who are definitely struggling and still trying to figure out how to make ends meet after um, a year. And now it seems like it's just picking back up again. And so mm -hmm. what is going to happen? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad that the food bank is there to help support and share the stories of the need. I mean, yes. keep sharing with the community so that people can step up and support. So tell, tell us a little bit about um, healthy food access. I know that's just such mm. a challenge. The food banks always get so much crap about the food that's handed out and it, it is a challenge. Yes, it is. I think that that's always been something we've struggled with mm -hmm. um, is the consistent healthy access to food. Um, and that was, you know, we have a, a produce truck um, called Lincoln Fresh and that truck goes out um, Monday through Thursday and we, and delivers fresh produce to people. Um, and then we use that we have a map called um, Place Matters that's in Lincoln. And um, that maps out what areas of town have low access to fresh produce or healthy foods. Um, and so we use that map to say, okay, where do we need to go? What would happen if we just decided twice a month to go to that same area and provide them with fresh produce? You know, would that change the map in years to come if we kept doing it? Um, and so that's how Lincoln Fresh evolved. And um, we purchase fresh produce primarily for that. But our goal really is to um, make it fun. It's geared towards kids so that they feel comfortable coming up to the truck, picking out produce, picking out things that they're both familiar with, but then also maybe they are not familiar with. Um, and so we go to some preschool locations, Head Start. Um, we go to two of those. That's a big stop for us. We've gone out to a couple other childcare centers, um, and it's really geared around where um, to try to provide consistent access so people can count on it, um, and try to just develop those uh, that excitement around produce and healthy eating, um, but not force it upon anyone. That it's not mm -hmm. we don't have this hidden agenda of like you're doing everything wrong. This is only what you should be eating. That yeah. it's again um, just to have them see it and know that we're going to be there again to show up. Um, and I think it's really fun for kids. You know, since COVID, we've bagged everything up. But before we have these shelves on the outside of the truck and they get to select it. And so the great thing is um, if you have three kids, all three kids, you know, we want them to pick stuff out. So it's not just one person picks out for the family. Um, if you've got kids, then we want all the kids to experience it, pick it out. Um, and then for new things, we'll try to make sure we have directions. So like mangoes are a big thing of like, how do you cut them? Mm -hmm. um, we have partnered with UNL Extension. So they'll sometimes do samples based on what we have um, so that families can try new things and see what's on there. They'll have little simple recipes. Uh, so it's been a great addition um, to the community, I think. And it's our way of saying, you know, we still want people to have choice. So, um, you know, we accept all food donations and distribute them out. But how do we make sure people aren't having to choose between um, healthy foods or cheap 
you know, unhealthy foods that we are making sure that they have access and um, that that's not a choice that they're having to make because it's, you know, produce. I think it's not that people don't want to eat it. It's, um, it's a risk. And I think um, it's a risk for you to buy it. And um, knowing that I know that my kids will eat this bag of chips or these boxes of macaroni and cheese, but I don't know if they'll eat these strawberries in time before mm-hmm. they go bad. And that's yeah. a big risk to spend $8 on that mm-hmm. and not know. And so this is a way to take that risk away to say like, but you still can um, get it and we want you to have it. And so yeah, that's, that's great. been a big thing for us. Um, that's really exciting. Yeah, um, an awesome yeah. job with that. So, yeah. Cool. So the um, Lincoln Fresh is funded by the Community Health Endowment. Yes. Or it used to be. <laughs> and is, yes, the Place Matters is, and the Community Health Endowment of Lincoln is a public fund that our community luckily has um, to um, support the health of the community. And so the fund um, gives out grant dollars to different organizations that are contributing to improving the health of the community. And Place Matters is a really cool um, project that looked at uh, the risk of the different health conditions as related to the zip code. So that the the your geography uh, your zip code matters as far yep. as your health and health disparities which i'm sure i haven't seen place matters data during covid uh but i can imagine that things are worse because health mm-hmm. disparities have worsened during covid healthy food access yep. has worsened so yeah it has it has um so we're still out there i think that um you know we just ended our season with that truck uh, but then we're excited next year we're getting a larger um, trailer unit um, to get to our rural communities. That same idea that how do we get more fresh produce? How do we let people select? So um, that one we're calling Hometown Fresh. Um, and that'll be out. Very similar idea of how do we get to these, these areas that don't have access. Um, so we're trying to pick pretty remote areas that are you know, 10 to 20 miles from a grocery store, or uh, there's some areas where it's 30 miles to a grocery store or 30 miles to our nearest distribution. So how do we just roll up in that town and provide people to come through and get um, healthy foods, so. I love the name of that hometown fresh choice. Hometown choice, is that what it's called? Hometown Fresh. Fresh. Okay. Oh, okay. I wrote choice because I, I, I love that um, the, a lot of the programs you're really embedding the dignity of choice. Yes. So it's not yeah. just like, oh, here you go. You know, I mean, during COVID, yes. I had to do that. But right. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. And I think that's really how you make change. Again, it's kind of that self-determination that um, I don't think we'll ever be a food bank where we are here to just tell you what you should eat or um, only give you these items that I just, we really think it's important for people to choose and to make decisions for their families, but also make sure they have access to all of the educational components um, in order to continue to make those choices. So Mm -hmm. I think that's what's great about what we're doing. I think that's great about what you're doing is just trying to reframe that idea that 
enough people are telling you what to do. How do we stop shaming you? And, um, you know, there's it doesn't work for anyone. <laughs> it doesn't. I so hate I think, it. I, I will know. Rebel, man. <laughs> that's right. I think that's kind of where we are too, is that how do we provide all of the choices, the options and the education? And again, that self-determination of um, we know what's best for you and your family. So we want you to be able to make that decision and have that power back that I think, especially in poverty, that so many people and so many systems are telling you what to do and what you're doing wrong, that it's, can we just make one, be one less um, forceful power that's saying, yeah. no, you can't, let, let's just make it about them, so. Yeah, that's so cool. Okay, um, tell us a little bit about SNAP, uh, yes. because people really get confused about that. People have a lot of bias. Again, oh my gosh. Yeah. Also known as food stamps. Yes. Um, but food banks um, ha have a really pivotal role in helping support getting families on SNAP to SNAP yeah. benefits. Yes. Uh, so SNAP, formerly the food stamp program, um, we have two full-time workers and their job is to do outreach in the community to educate folks on what SNAP is. Um, what um, is available as far as benefits and making sure that everyone, if you apply, that you have all of the information correct and in the system, um, they can apply for you um, in order to get those benefits. So uh, we have two people and they just travel around to the 16 counties. They have spots here in Lincoln and then in our 50 counties to help people apply for those benefits. Um, and SNAP, you can buy groceries. Uh, it's an EBT card. Uh, you cannot buy tobacco or alcohol. Um, you also cannot purchase prepared foods, so warm foods um, that are already prepared. Um, it is simply groceries. And I think, um, you know, the average for one person is like a hundred and, I don't know, $70 or something. So it's not like people are getting hundreds and hundreds of dollars for one person to eat off of. Um, I think that's a huge myth um, of SNAP. In order to be eligible for SNAP, um, you have to meet some guidelines that are set by the federal government. So the state, there are two different ways to qualify. Uh, there's a gross eligibility requirement, which is about 130% of the federal poverty guideline. Um, and then once you meet that gross eligibility, there's a net eligibility that you then have to meet. And that's what's set by the federal government. So once you get in the door, that's when they subtract different expenses from uh, your household to see if you meet that net. If you meet the net, then they will give you those benefits based on your household size. Um, so just some myths around SNAP. I think people, um, the last I knew the average stay or time people would be on the program is like nine months. So wow. this is not like years and years and years of people um, even if it was <laughs> off of SNAP. You know, I think that's a huge myth. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you have to recertify every six months. So you have to reapply, submit everything again um, to make sure that you do qualify. We have one of the lowest error rates across the country, which just means um, 
you know, we are ensuring that people who are on the program do in fact qualify for that program. Uh, we have our own checks and balances that we do. Um, but I would say, you know, it's not, um, are there exceptions to everything? Yes. Um, but primarily, you know, this is to help supplement people who are really struggling. Um, if you look at the federal poverty guidelines, it's really not a huge amount. So um, it's very, very little income that you have to have in order to meet those guidelines. So um, I think that just some myths are just of what, again, just with poverty of what people should look like. If you see them using an EBG card, I think people have in their mind, like, Somebody should have these holy jeans and have dirt on their face and, and no phone and, and no they, phone. They forget and, that a lot of people are working and it's not your yeah. place to judge. It just ticks yeah. me off. I it. know. Yeah. Um, that's definitely a frustration that I see that you just, again, you don't know what people are going through and you don't know their story. And I just think you have to get this image out of your head of what someone in poverty looks like, because again, it could be myself it could be you and you yeah. don't know how people get things I mean I think that's a big misconception um is again you know and then where they're going how are they carrying these to their brand new car or whatever it is mm -hmm. I mean you just don't know um and I always talk about you know if I were on snap um and I told the story like right after I graduated college and came here that one of the graduation gifts for my friends and I is we bought our very first coach wallet which was very exciting mm -hmm. and um I still have it and I don't use it but back then I was still using it and I would say like if my husband decided okay he's had it and we're over um you know I would qualify for food stamps and so when you see me I may be coming after work from a meeting and so I'm dressed up and then you see me get my EBT card out of my coach wallet and what are your thoughts you know you don't know that um it was bought at the outlets and um my friends and I we purchased it for ourselves um and then you're gonna go see me get into at that time you know this small SUV that I owned that I am not making payments on that was mine and what are your thoughts you, know, you have all of these thoughts, but you don't know that. You don't know that um, I own this car and that that wallet. And you get into defending yourself, which you, you don't do. have to. And, so, and it's nobody's business. And I see it all the time funny. on social media, on TikTok. Yes. I mean, with the body positive creators. Yeah. And it's just like they get so much hate and trolls over the judgment of the external. And it's, I mean it's, it's just so true to form now. I mean, it's, yes. it's so ridiculous. The tactics, it's cyberbullying. It okay, no. That's a different situation. It is, but I just always think, you know, I shouldn't have to like go home and change my clothes, throw some dirt yeah. on my face so that I don't feel guilty using my EBT card. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. When you see me pull it out, um, that, that you feel that I'm justified. And I think that's where we've got to change how we react or like criticizing everything that you see on the in the line of what I'm purchasing too um mm -hmm. that's a big piece of it you know? just stay in your lane people that's right Live your life that's right. not issues too you're you're <laughs> that's right you gotta mind your own business people uh so true. how do we connect so people need to know and don't understand that food banks do help 
their clients with SNAP benefits. So that's one thing to know. And also like one of the things that's always frustrating is how do we connect doctors to the work mm. of the you know, food bank. And I mean, there's screening now, but they're not all using it. Um, but it's really important for anyone who's a physician, anyone in healthcare that you have a list of the local food access resources. Yes, it is so important. And I think, you know, like you said, it's, we're making progress, but it's still not a priority or, um, you know, that doctors are kind of screening who they even think would be food insecure. So then they're not asking everybody Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, if I walk in, they think, well, Lynn pays her bill on time every time. She's good about making her appointments. So I'm guessing she's not food insecure. She's not going to ask these questions. Um, And so then they skip it and they may be missing out on that piece or, I think there's still some of that work that needs to be done as far as who you even think it's asking everybody. Um, I remember I went to uh, New Mexico and my son was ill. And so we had to go to urgent care and they had this whole list of screening questions that they personally asked him and they knew nothing. And I thought that was really great. And some of those questions um, were, um, are you hungry? Um, do you have enough to eat? Do you feel safe where you are? Uh, do you feel protected? And just had this basic list of screening questions that they just asked him. So it wasn't even that they asked me. Um, and I asked my mom who lives there and she said, no, that is a basic, they are all on board with that, that all the physicians, all of, and I thought that's really cool um, that it was all of those questions, that that was just part of their routine. And that was at the urgent care. Um, and so I just thought, you know, we're not quite there yet. Um, but I hope that more and more physicians see this as a way to try to screen those, um, use, utilize those questions. And I get, we're asking a lot of doctors and physicians to do, there's so many screening questions you could ask, you know, at any visit. Um, I'm sure that they're getting bombarded with, you know, could you ask this and could you ask this? Well, they can do it. (laughs) But I feel like food security is such an important piece. And um, when you are food insecure, of just so many other things that can happen as a consequence of that, um, as far as your health. And so I feel like I'm hoping that we continue to make progress as far as making it a priority where we're asking everybody and not just some Um, and that physicians really see how important it is. And then if it's yes, now what? That they know exactly what to do and where to send folks um, so that they have that access. And the American Academy of Pediatrics, it was in, I think 2015, had a food policy, food insecurity policy statement. Um, And they, they come up with these policy statements, you know, but really encouraging pediatricians to screen within the clinics. And they took the USDA questionnaire and had like a two question, um, took two Mm -hmm. questions out of that that were like simple, validated. And if they said yes to either one, then you refer to the local community resources of the food bank. So we need to we can do that. We can do that. It's, it's not hard. And especially during yeah. COVID, I mean, this is, that's what we do. That yeah. only affects their health. If they're not eating, then we have nothing. So we right. gotta feed people first. 
Um, so anyway, that's really powerful. So all the doctors, let's step up and do better. No. So let me see. I'm going to ask you some questions as kind of like a more um, community, like visionary. Yes. So I want to know how do you stay with like with a positive vision when you mm. are just like faced with all the need? Yeah. Um, I'm going to grab this credit card real quick. Sorry for my coworker who needs to go pay for some food at Costco. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know. Very random. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I think, okay, how do I stay positive? Um, I think it's just remembering staying connected to the work is the mm -hmm. first thing that I think is important um, and not losing sight of that. Um, and I think for me, it's remembering, you know, those kiddos or those people that I've run into who do let me in and share with me what's going on. I think that never forgetting that. Um, and I think that's kind of me, um, kind of social worky of just, you know, when people let you in, um, just realizing what an honor and privilege that is, that they are letting you in to this intimate piece of their life and what are you going to do with that and how are you using that and um, trying to make change based on that and I think holding on to that as um, you know when I talk about Perkins one of our distributions and that family you know that girl that I've helped so many times of like never losing sight of what an honor that is that she has allowed me in and I think that that's what I have to remember is how do we keep this vision going, even though like you mentioned, you know, COVID's never ending, we aren't moving the needle, um, but never lo losing sight of her and knowing that this is why we're not going to lose sight Can of the Can you tell us her story again? Yeah, that girl in particular, um, we have a Perkins distribution, which is the Perkins restaurant. Um, it's an old restaurant location and it is by um, many motels. So they're definitely not hotels. They are motels mm -hmm. and um, not the best motels. Um, there's a lot of yucky activity happening in these motels. The police are there frequently. Um, there's sex trafficking, drug trafficking, just not mm -hmm. ideal. These are places where people are essentially living, not just staying. Um, and so we did a distribution there every Friday and I started seeing this young girl come out um, and carry food back to her hotel, her motel room. And um, as I started walking stuff over, I really got to know her. And just my first experience with her was, um, she was probably nine at the time, just how very purposeful she was about selecting the food that would go back to her motel. So things that she knew would fit in the fridge, um, things that she knew her family would be eating um, just very thoughtful about what she would take. And then she'd just make trips back and forth to bring, you know, I'm going to bring this box and then I'll be back. Um, and I'd always ask her, you know, like, why are, can somebody help you? And, um, I just remember eventually like not asking anymore because I knew like no one's coming to help this girl carry this food. Um, but also important for me to, set some boundaries to not get too involved to say like, let me just carry this to your room so that I can really dive in. I think that was important for me as um, she was good carrying multiple, making multiple trips, 
Um, and if I would set food aside for her, we'd pick stuff out. She would talk to me about, you know, like what they were making that particular, there was a particular distribution where we had sour cream. So she was very excited because they're going to make tacos that night. So now she would have sour cream. Um, and eventually her brother would come down and help her carry stuff. Um, who, and the thing about both of them is, uh, they had these amazing, manners for being so young just again very grateful very polite very well spoken this girl was so incredibly bright um and her brother was also extremely intelligent I was always blown away and just how they um were navigating all of this they were all there was three children and a single mom living in one room and um they were just trying to find food that they could they could eat living in a motel. So, um, you know, and we would just every week that was like the check-in of, okay, I know that you're still doing okay because you're here. Um, she would tell me about school and um, brother would tell me about school and they would really be um, so positive despite everything that was going on. And the thing that really got me uh, is the brother at one point had a conversation with me and he was like, I wonder what it's like to be like an actual kid, you know, to like live like a kid. Um, because there was so much stuff that he was carrying as far as like having to take care of his siblings because his mom was working all the time, um, dealing with school stuff um, and just regular teenage things that he couldn't even process those because it's like all of this other stuff was happening in his life. And um, I think those two, that's what I remember. Uh, that's who I remember as we carry on this vision is that I feel like we're indebted to them and that we owe them a childhood and that we, um, we owe them and we have messed up as a community to continue to allow that to happen and for them to have this responsibility um, of figuring out because I know you know, their mom is struggling with some mental health stuff and we know what that can do. And I think, you know, you can speak to, to that too is um, it's not that the mom is not trying. There's just so much happening for her that yeah. she's having even trouble digging out. And again, that self-determination and motivation. And so I feel like that's what keeps the vision going for me is that we owe them, that we are in debt to them um, because we messed that up. Mm -hmm. um, and there are thousands of more of those siblings. Uh, but for me, that's what the vision, even though I see, you know, ugh, we're not really moving the needle on this. We're not doing as much as I thought we could do by now. But for those two, uh, I think as a community, we are forever in debt and we've got to make right on that uh, for kids like that. That's an amazing so. and beautiful and heart-wrenching story. Yeah. That's actually a call to action for us all to keep stepping up and connect. Yep and say I'm here for you and yes. I want to be here for you and you matter and we're just yep. going and that's what it takes I mean when you mm -hmm. the research yeah. the needle um tell us how to support how should people support food banks um hunger programs it can volunteer donate of course but yeah yeah, how can I think it's just um, continuing to speak up and um, speak out about hunger and kind of changing what we perceive as 
the old hunger almost, that there is a new hunger um, and a new face to hunger. And it is honestly, it looks just like you and I, um, that I think we have to continue to fight that myth and that um, stereotype that this is who it is that we believe is hungry and that um, we've got to change that as a community. And I think that we have to really be uncomfortable and not okay with this issue of hunger and poverty and um, really take some steps to acknowledge what our own participation is in order to sustain it and what has kept this going. And um, I think that's the hardest work that has to be done is um, unpacking our own, I guess, privilege or participation that's made us comfortable, but also has continued to keep those uh, where they're at. And I think that that's the hardest work. It's not asking individuals who are experiencing poverty to do all these changes. It's how do we get to do work? How do we dive in and really um, challenge our own beliefs and what we've known to be true and be uncomfortable um, and acknowledge some things that we just haven't wanted to? Wow. Yeah, that's very powerful. Very powerful. Well, thanks, Alin. Where can everybody find you? I mean, maybe you don't want to share your email. Maybe you do. Um, <laughs> if there are people who have... Um, questions and want to learn more about maybe launching some of these programs in their community um, or how they can help um, address hunger in their community. Um, can they reach out to your email or find you on your website? Yeah, they can find me on our website, which is just lincolnfoodbank.org. Uh, and we have a staff listing and I'm on there. Awesome. So reach out um, to Elin. She'll be super helpful. We already got your takeaway message, but with IME community, one of the things is like, we really focus on make it fun to get it done. So tell me what you do mm. for fun. What do I do for fun? Um, for fun, I am a huge foodie. So I, you know, as we talk about food, um, I enjoy baking. I enjoy trying new foods, new restaurants. That's like one of my favorite pastimes, which has kind of slowed down um, in the last year. Mm -hmm. Like there's all these new places that I haven't been to yet, but um, I would say that's something that I do for, for fun. That's one of my favorites. Yay. So, all right. Yeah. We'll end with that. And okay, I you. can't thank you enough for spending all this amazing time with me and teaching all of us about the importance of addressing um, hunger and looking at the root causes and getting uncomfortable and keep moving forward and not being okay with any person in our community being hungry. And I'm so proud of you, Lynn, and I'm so inspired by you every day. And thank I'm so grateful you. for your time. And thank everyone, you. This thanks for joining so us and listening and uh, I haven't decided on the next one, uh, but if you have a visionary champion who's addressing needs in your community, uh, share them, uh, share their contact information with me, reach out to Dr. Carla, activistmd at imecommunity.com, which I know is a long email, but reach out to me. I want to really highlight um, community champions who are visionaries, who are staying the course, driving impact 
on that community level and um, they're the people who are really truly changing the world so we want to highlight lots of people from lots of different communities so have a great day thank you thank you for tuning in to the ime community podcast where self-love is your superpower the content of this podcast represents the opinions of dr carla lester and is not intended as and shall not be understood as a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment the opinions shared reflect the host and guest and do not represent an organization or medical group always seek the advice of your physician or therapist if you have concerns about your health and please like and subscribe to the ime community podcast Share IME with your friends and go to imecommunity.com to join the member community. Don't forget to follow IME on social.